welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm here with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. We'll be taking you through the February 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Emergency Department Management of Patients with Thermal Burns. Nothing like covering burns in the middle of winter to keep the readers on their toes. We've actually had a couple of big fires in New York City, so I'd argue that this is pretty pertinent right now. Fair enough. This month's issue was authored by Dr. Juliana Tolls of the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and was edited by Dr. Boyd Burns of the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine and Dr. Christopher Palmer of WashU. The recommendations for this review come from nearly 100 articles, mostly smaller trials and observational studies. In addition to 11 articles from the Cochrane Database, one guideline from the National Guidelines Clearinghouse, and two guidelines from the ABA. That's the American Burn Association. With that in mind, let's begin. The amount of heat, duration, and temperature of the heat exposure all play a role in causing thermal burns. Any temperature above 40 degrees Celsius can cause protein denaturation. Figure 1 on page 3 nicely illustrates the three zones used to describe burn tissue. The zone of coagulation, or central zone, is the point of maximal damage. This is surrounded by the zone of stasis. Tissue in this zone is at risk of necrosis if perfusion isn't quickly restored. And lastly, we have the zone of hyperemia, the most removed tissues that will likely heal. In addition to local damage, burns that involve greater than 20% of total body surface area also cause a profound systemic inflammatory response, mediated by tumor necrosis factor and interleukin-6, as well as other oxide species. Larger burns can lead to widespread tissue edema, a dramatic loss of intravascular volume, multi-organ failure, pulmonary edema, myocardial depression, paralytic ileus, and depression of red blood cell production. Burns are most commonly classified according to the ABA criteria. Minor burns are known as either superficial or first-degree burns and involve only the epidermis. They appear dry with blanching erythema. Such burns usually heal in 5 to 10 days without complications. Superficial partial thickness burns, a type of second-degree burn, involves the upper dermis as well as the epidermis. They may have blisters, appear wet, and also have blanching erythema. They usually heal without scarring over a period of about 3 weeks. Deep partial thickness burns are also a type of second-degree burn. The damage extends to the lower dermis. They appear yellow or white and are dry and non-blanching. Of note, deep partial thickness burns have decreased sensation. These typically heal in three to eight weeks and usually scar. The last type of burn to be aware of in the ABA classification scheme is a full thickness or third degree burn. Third degree burns involve the entire dermis as well as the subcutaneous structures. They may be white or even blackish brown. They shouldn't blanch and likely have decreased sensation. Third degree burns heal by contracture over eight weeks and they definitely scar. And don't worry if you find estimating burns apt difficult. Studies have found that burn surgeons and emergency physicians only successfully differentiate between full and partial thickness burns about 60 to 80 percent of the time. Moving on to the next section, the differential, there isn't much to discuss since the thermal burn should be fairly apparent, and dare I say glaringly obvious, from the history. Other things to consider that may appear like thermal burns include chemical and electrical burns, staph scalded skin syndrome, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and even toxic epidermal necrolysis. And it's also worth mentioning that since many of the thermal burns we see in the emergency department will be the result of a house fire, you need to consider associated exposures as part of the presentation, especially carbon monoxide and cyanide toxicity. More on that in a bit. Definitely. All right, on to pre-hospital care. This month, we actually have a ton to talk about. As always, safety first. The first priority should be moving the patient to a safe environment. Once that's done, you can assess the patient's ABCs. Hypotension should be managed with IV crystalloid and respiratory failure should be managed with non-invasive or invasive ventilation as required. For any patient with a suspected inhalation injury, 100% oxygen should be immediately administered by face mask. Current evidence also supports pre-hospital administration of hydroxocobalamin for any suspected cyanide toxicity. 
The European Expert Consensus Panel endorsed pre-hospital hydroxycobalamin to any patient with smoke inhalation and a GCS less than 9, or any hemodynamic instability and a GCS less than 13. Additionally, several studies also support pre-hospital cooling of burned areas. In one retrospective study of just under 700 burn patients, immediately cooling the burn with cold water at the scene significantly lowered the rate of deep thickness burns. And I'm not talking about any fancy cooling devices here. Cool running water has been shown to be sufficient. And while animal models support cooling times of greater than 20 minutes to reduce burn depth, never delay transport of a critically ill patient for the sake of cooling. And lastly, don't forget about pre-hospital pain management. This could be done with the help of intravenous opioids, depending on local pre-hospital protocols. To decrease the likelihood of pain during transfer, pre-hospital providers can cover burn wounds as well. All right, so that about covers the pre-hospital phase of care. Let's move into the ED, getting started with history. Make sure to elicit the circumstances of the burn. This will help determine if you need to hunt for concomitant traumatic injuries or if there's any risk of inhalation injury. It's also important to pin down a specific time of the burn because the fluid resuscitation clock starts at that point, not at the time the patient arrives to the ED. Oh, and don't forget about updating the tetanus either. On to physical. Start with the vitals. While hemodynamic instability could be due to severe burns, it's more likely due to other traumatic injuries that should be addressed first. Assuming no instability exists, the patient will need a thorough airway evaluation. Listen for strider and examine the oral pharynx for any signs of inhalational injuries, such as singed nasal or facial hairs, soot deposits in the oral pharynx, and any facial burns. Next, estimate the total body surface area, or TBSA, of all burned tissue, but not including first-degree burned area. There are numerous methods one can use, all with varying degrees of accuracy. The most accurate method, with the highest degree of inter-radar reliability, is to use the London Browder chart, which relies on an age-adjusted body map to estimate burned area. This is pictured on page 6, but a simple Google search will also pull up a similar chart. For a quicker but less accurate method, you can use the quote rule of nines, which divides the body into areas assumed to be multiples of 9% of the body. This method is fast, but consistently overestimates the TBSA, leading to excess fluid administration. And perhaps easiest of all, you can use a patient's own palm, as each palm-sized area of burn represents approximately 1% of the TBSA. Just like the rule of nines, this also overestimates the percentage burned. So like most things in medicine, maybe even life, speed and accuracy are at odds with one another. And lastly, although we'll address this a bit later, while doing your thorough skin exam, look out for circumferential burns, which can inhibit distal perfusion, and if on the chest, decrease chest wall compliance and interfere with ventilation. We'll get back to that in a bit. Let's move on to diagnostic studies. For patients with smaller burns, less than 20% of the total body surface area involvement, and no full thickness burns or inhalation injury, no labs are necessary. But for others with more extensive or severe burns or with persistent vital sign abnormalities, several tests are needed. A complete blood count should be obtained for a baseline hemoglobin as anemia may develop secondary to hemodilution. A comprehensive metabolic panel is also required for baseline kidney and liver function to monitor for end organ damage, and a bicarbonate level will help measure the anion gap. Additionally, an ABG with a carboxyhemoglobin should be obtained for suspected inhalation injuries. Any carboxyhemoglobin over 15 suggests toxicity and requires treatment, may also help determine the degree of lung injury. A lactate should be drawn as an elevated lactate should prompt empiric treatment for cyanide poisoning if there is suspected inhalation injury. This is critically important, as a serum cyanide level drawn in the ED will not result rapidly enough for appropriate clinical management. In fact, a serum cyanide level is not even indicated in these patients. And of course, send a type and screen in those with concomitant trauma and a urine pregnancy test for all women of childbearing age. We'll touch on pregnancy-related issues at the end of this episode in the special circumstances section. Perfect. So that wraps up labs. Let's discuss imaging. There's not a ton here, so I'll quickly breeze through it. 
A chest x-ray is not a sensitive test for inhalation injuries, although it may be needed as part of a trauma workup. Interestingly, although CT of the chest need not be routinely used, in at least two small studies, CT findings for inhalational injury did correlate well with patient-important outcomes, like days of mechanical ventilation and mortality. And lastly, bronchoscopy, while not readily available, may also play a role in predicting lower respiratory tract injury. Nice and straightforward with the imaging. Let's move on to the fun stuff, treatment. Similar to pre-hospital care, immediate ED cares involving stabilizing the patient's airway, cooling the burn, treating toxic exposures, initiating fluid resuscitation, controlling pain, and lastly, performing wound care. With respect to airway management, the first step is placing all inhalation victims on 100% oxygen through a non-rebreather face mask on arrival. With any upper airway burn, airway edema, strider, or signs of respiratory compromise, Expert consensus supports early intubation, as delays in intubation can lead to a worsening airway edema and a difficult or impossible intubation. Speaking of intubation, what about the classic teaching of avoiding succinylcholine in burn victims for fear of hyperkalemia? Excellent question, and I was just getting there. Succinylcholine is not recommended in patients with burns over 48 hours old. In acute burns, there's no contraindication. Good to know. So sux is okay in the acute phase. Once intubated, those with extensive injury are at risk of developing ARDS. Appropriate vent management for patients with ARDS is a podcast unto itself, but definitely check out the ARDSNAP protocol if you aren't familiar with it. All right, so let's move on to toxic exposures associated with thermal injuries. Carbon monoxide shifts the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve to the left, resulting in hypoxia at the cellular level. This can lead to altered mental status, seizures, and long-term neurologic injury. Luckily, the treatment is simple. 100% FiO2, which hopefully you've already started since you already suspected an inhalational injury. 100% oxygen shortens the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin to approximately 45 minutes. You should continue treating with 100% FiO2 until the carboxyhemoglobin levels are less than 15%. And what about hyperbarics? Are those also an option for carbon monoxide exposure? Hyperbarics decrease the half-life even further, but the benefit is unclear, at least according to one systematic review of over 1,300 patients. The other toxic exposure mentioned in this issue is cyanide. In burn patients, cyanide levels correlate with mortality, so they're definitely not to be ignored. And there are two treatment options, hydroxocobalamin or sodium nitrite plus sodium thiosulfate. Based on expert opinion, retrospective reviews, and ovine studies, hydroxocobalamin 5 grams IV should be administered to patients with suspected cyanide toxicity. Hydroxocobalamin produces faster resolution of hypotension when compared to sodium nitrite and sodium thiosulfate. And if the patient doesn't respond to the first dose, a second 5-gram dose can be administered. Remember to draw labs first as hydroxocobalamin may interfere with standard lab tests. If hydroxocobalamin is not available, 300 mg of sodium nitrite plus 12.5 mg of sodium thiosulfate can be used instead. However, do note that if there's concern for concurrent cyanide and carbon monoxide toxicities, avoid sodium nitrite. Sodium nitrite works by forming methemoglobin, which chelates cyanide. But in the setting of a concurrent carbon monoxide toxicity, the methemoglobin would further reduce the already diminished oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood due to the existing carboxyhemoglobin. Not ideal. So if hydroxycobalamin isn't available and there's concern for concurrent carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning, give sodium thiosulfate alone. This, however, is far inferior as an alternative to hydroxycobalamin, as it doesn't readily penetrate intracellularly in cerebral tissue. Okay, very briefly with respect to cooling. This really should be initiated by EMS. If the patient presents directly to the ED, the burn should certainly be cooled. The data with regards to delayed cooling is unclear, and there may be no benefit. However, there's also very little risk, so it's probably worth a shot. Unlike cooling, fluid resuscitation is a bit more complex. 
the ABA guidelines recommend IV fluids for all patients with greater than 20% TBSA burned to maintain end-organ perfusion. And while there's ongoing controversy and no current RCTs, most guidelines recommend lactated ringer solution over normal saline is a fluid of choice for resuscitation. Albumin and hypertonic saline have also both been tested as well. In these studies, although less total fluids were administered, there were no important differences with respect to outcomes. In terms of fluid volume to administer, there are two common formulas used, the Parkland formula and the modified Brook formula. For Parkland, multiply 4 by the patient's weight in kilograms by the percent of total body surface area burned. Give the first half in the first 8 hours, and the next half over the following 16 hours. For the modified Brook formula, multiply 2 by the patient's weight in kilograms by the percent total body surface area burned. Again, give the first half in the first 8 hours, and the next half over the following 16 hours. MDCalc offers an easy-to-use calculator for the Parkland formula, which you can access via the website or their phone app. And for what it's worth, probably a lot, the ABA guidelines hedge their bets and recommend 2 to 4 mils multiplied by the patient's weight in kilograms by the percent total body surface area burned and giving it over 24 hours. For most, this will be sufficient, but for those with deeper burns and inhalational injuries, these formulas tend to underestimate the volume required. Regardless of amount administered, the ABA also recommends titrating resuscitation fluids to maintain a urine output of 0.5 to 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour in adults and 1 to 1.5 milliliter per kilogram per hour in children. This month's issues briefly touches on blood transfusions for anemia, which develop from hemodilution and the SERS response to large burns. The authors have no specific recommendations, but state that therapy should be based on evidence of physiologic need. You'll have to rely on your own clinical judgment for this one. Next up, we have local wound care. The first step in wound care is irrigation with sterile water or saline followed by debridement of devitalized tissue. With the skin cleaned and debrided, you can then move on to wound dressings. First degree or superficial burns need to be kept clean and dry. Partial thickness burns, on the other hand, require a dressing. This is where things get a bit complicated. Actually, not really. Despite the multitude of products available, there is scant evidence for the superiority of a single dressing type. Table 4 on page 10 reviews the advantages, disadvantages, and cost of a variety of dressing options. It's not really worth us reviewing each product individually here, but in general, just be aware that numerous trials have shown that silver-based dressings are associated with longer healing times with no difference in infection rates. However, specifically with respect to facial burns, low-quality evidence suggests that occlusive dressings reduced healing time when compared to topical agents alone. We definitely need a good RCT on this one. It's crazy how widely different the costs are for some of these products, all apparently with similar outcomes, but I digress. In any case, a minute ago you mentioned debriding the tissue. Let's dive a bit deeper there. What does the data say about blisters, since I know that's always a controversial topic? Great question, and there are two camps here. Those that feel that non-viable tissue is a nidus for infection, and those that feel that intact blisters decrease risk for infection and in fact provide comfort. With this in mind, experts feel that small blisters, less than 6 millimeters, may be left intact, but larger blisters that interfere with functional movement may be debrided. And there's less debate when it comes to full thickness burns. Those require surgical excision by a burn surgeon. Speaking of burn surgery, that's a perfect segue into our next topic, escharotomies. As with all rare procedures, the evidence is limited to case series and expert opinion. But in general, emergent indications for escharotomy include absent or decreased pulse oximetry, absent or decreased pulses, elevated compartment pressures, or new onset neurologic deficits. With circumferential chest burns, inability to ventilate the patient is an additional indication. And when performing the escharotomy, the midlateral and mid-medial areas of the limbs should be incised, avoiding important neurovascular structures and going just deep enough to allow the escar to move independently. And that's another important point. A proper escharotomy requires two incisions, not just one. 
All right, so the last aspect of wound care is antibiotics. Slow down for a second. We have one more burn location to cover, ocular burns. Corneal burns are rare thanks to the protective corneal reflexes, but if you do come across one, they should first be irrigated copiously. After irrigation, despite a positive evidence, experts recommend applying ophthalmic antibiotic ointment while consulting ophthalmology. All right, so now we'll finish this out with a quick note on antibiotics. Despite widespread use, there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against both systemic and topical prophylactic antibiotics. Tetanus vaccination, however, is endorsed by the CDC guidelines, so you should go ahead and administer that if the patient is not up to date. Oh wait, and one more thing for treatment. Don't forget about analgesia. Burns are incredibly painful, and dressing changes in application can cause intense discomfort. For this reason, opiates are the mainstay of treatment. One study found that an average of 8 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl was required for burn dressing changes. That's quite a bit in your average size person. Additionally, there's reasonable data to support the use of topical lidocaine, especially for small burns. And if you want to get a bit more cutting edge, a recent meta-analysis found that ketamine is also effective in treating burn pain. Not all that surprising. Yet another evidence-based use of ketamine. All right, let's move on to the special populations. The first population to discuss are pediatric patients. In general, pediatric burns have a good prognosis. However, in those 0 to 4 years old, with burns over 30% of their total body surface area, mortality is actually higher in children than it is in adults. And we already mentioned it, but it's worth repeating. TBSA in children can and should be calculated using the London Browder chart as it adjusts for age. In multiple studies, providers referring to burn centers overestimate the size of the burn, likely because they are using less accurate methods. And don't forget that if you're using the palmar surface area as your guide, in children, the palm is only 0.5% of the total body surface area and only approaches the 1% total body surface area if you include their digits. Just as TBSA calculations differ slightly in children, so do fluid resuscitation guidelines as children have higher requirements when compared to adults. Current ABA guidelines recommend using the Shriner Cincinnati formula. This adds 1,500 milliliters per square meter to the number calculated by the Parkland formula. And of the utmost importance, remember that intentional injury must be considered in all pediatric burns. As non-accidental burns tend to involve immersion, one systematic review found that symmetric appearing wounds with clear upper margins and the presence of old, unrelated injuries were all associated with non-accidental burns. Burn location also plays a role, as accidental burns are more likely to occur to the upper body. Non-accidental burns tend to involve the extremities, buttocks, and perineum. And lastly, at least one recent study noted an association between delayed presentation and non-accidental injury. Make sure to check out the May 2015 and July 2017 issues of Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice for more on these topics. The next population to discuss are pregnant patients. At least in animal models, carboxyhemoglobin levels in the fetus may be up to 15% higher than those in the mother, with an elimination half-life three times that of the mother. Because of this, 100% FiO2 is recommended for all pregnant mothers with any possible carbon monoxide exposure. And despite traditional teaching, the use of hyperbarics in this population also isn't backed by convincing data. Similarly, maternal cyanide exposure can lead to deleterious effects on the fetus. Although evidence suggests at least some teratogenicity with hydroxocobalamin, it's still approved by the FDA, given the potential benefit for fetal and maternal mortality with cyanide exposure. And lastly, in any critically ill pregnant burn patient, delivery of the fetus may be considered to improve both maternal and fetal outcomes. Not surprisingly, data on this isn't all that robust. All right, we've covered quite a bit so far, so let's move on to the controversies and cutting edge. First up, we have analgesia. IV lidocaine at 1.5 milligrams per kilogram for three doses reduced pain scores but did not reduce opiate requirements. The next controversy to discuss is wound care. 
First up here we have aloe vera. Aloe vera performed as well as silver sulfadiazine with respect to wound healing. Honey has also been used to treat burns. One systematic review of almost 1,000 patients demonstrated that honey heals burns more quickly than conventional wound dressings. In another trial, honey performed as well as silver sulfadiazine and had less adverse effects. Definitely something to consider. And we've touched on this last topic, hyperbarics, a number of times already. But basically, of 22 trials using hyperbaric oxygen, only two were high quality, and both of these had significant methodologic flaws. And therefore, at this current time, evidence regarding hyperbaric oxygen is inconclusive. That's so surprising to me, as hyperbarics is absolutely the classic teaching. We always knew a lot of, quote, classic teaching wasn't evidence-based. This is just one example. Still shocks me. So that's it for controversies. We have a single topic for the cutting edge, using laser Doppler imaging to estimate burn depth. This two-decade-old technology uses Doppler flow to estimate perfusion to the burn tissues. In theory, it should be able to predict the need for operative intervention, with one review citing a sensitivity of 83% and a specificity of 97%. Despite these relatively good performance characteristics, in one randomized control trial, laser Doppler imaging made no difference in wound healing time or mean cost of care versus a standard of care. For this reason, in addition to its limited availability, it's not currently recommended in ED management. Interesting technology nonetheless. Alright, so now that the patient has been assessed and treated, let's talk disposition. While some patients may be managed locally, the ABA has very clear criteria for referral to a burn center. Criteria include partial thickness burns greater than 10% of the total body surface area, burns involving the face, hands, feet, genitalia, perineum, or joints, third-degree burns, electrical burns including lightning injury, chemical burns, inhalation injury, burns in medically complex patients with a potentially prolonged recovery, and burns with concomitant trauma. Children should be transferred to pediatric burn center. And lastly, any burn patient with a special social, emotional, or rehab need should also be transferred. Despite these clear guidelines for transfer, one multi-year study found that 48% of patients who were treated locally met burn center transfer referral criteria. In my clinical experience, the local burn centers, much like the poison centers, love to get involved and help if possible. Definitely use the resources available to you. So that's it for this month's issue. Let's close out with some key points and clinical pearls. First degree burns are superficial and involve only the epidermis. Second degree burns are partial thickness and involve the dermis. Third degree burns are full thickness and invade the subcutaneous structures. For any patient with suspected inhalation injury, 100% oxygen via non-rebreather should be initiated immediately. Intubate early for burns to the upper airway if there is airway edema, stridor, or other signs of respiratory compromise. Delay may make intubation impossible as the tissues become more edematous. And treat empirically for inhalation-related toxicity in unstable patients and those with altered mental status. An elevated lactate level should prompt empiric treatment for cyanide poisoning in cases of suspected inhalational injury. The treatment of choice is hydroxocobalamin 5 grams IV. This is preferred over sodium nitrate and sodium thiosulfate. A carboxyhemoglobin level greater than 15 suggests toxicity and requires treatment. In pregnant patients, any measurable carboxyhemoglobin level should be treated with 100% oxygen. The data on hyperbarics is inconclusive. The Lund and Browder chart can be used to accurately estimate total body surface area burned. Patients with greater than 20% total body surface area burned become rapidly volume depleted. Use the Parkland formula or modified Brook formula to resuscitate with a crystalloid fluid like lactated ringers. Titrate fluid resuscitation to a urine output of 0.5 to 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour in adults and 1 to 1.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour in children. All wounds should be irrigated and devitalized tissue needs to be debrided. Partial thickness burns require a dressing. Avoid silver-based dressings as they're associated with longer healing times. 
Interestingly, honey heals burns more quickly than some conventional wound dressings. Emergent escharotomies should be considered if there are absent or decreased pulse oximetry, absent or decreased pulses, elevated compartment pressures, or new onset neurologic deficits. Escharotomy requires two incisions, avoiding important neurovascular structures. Inability to ventilate due to a chest escar is an emergent indication for an escharotomy. Be aggressive in treatment of pain related to burns. Consider non-accidental burns in children. Refer to the ABA criteria to determine need for transfer to a local burn center. So that wraps up the February 2018 episode of Amplify. And as the winter months drag on, don't you wish you had a warm summer conference to look forward to? Well, worry no more. EB Medicine is here to help. Check out www.clinicaldecisionmaking.com to learn more about the upcoming Clinical Decision Making and Emergency Medicine Conference, co-sponsored by EB Medicine, which will be held in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida from June 21st to June 24th. Having attended last year, this is definitely a can't-miss event. Great speakers, up-to-date evidence-based lectures, and a well-deserved break from the chaos of the ED, all at a beautiful Florida, family-friendly beach resort. Make sure to follow EB Medicine on Twitter at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Remember to check out this month's issue of Points and Pearls for a quick-hitting summary of key points in the article, as well as practice-changing clinical pearls. And don't forget to head over to ebmedicine.net slash e0218 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a few minutes to breeze through the 10 questions after having listened to this episode. For all of our resident listeners out there who don't need CME, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started today. Talk to you all next month.